Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, October the 20th, 2022. As you can tell from my background, the show is on the road. We're in DC today, um, and we're talking... America, the future of American capitalism, probably should have been in Detroit, the future particularly of the American car industry. Um, we've done a number of shows about whether or not American business, American capitalism has a soul, whether you can combine efficiency, innovation, and morality. We did one with a very distinguished uh, American journalist, Alan Murray. He has a new book out called Tomorrow's Capitalist. Also, did a show with Dov Seidman, another of America's leading thinkers and voices on immoral capitalism. And one of the people that always seems to come up when we have this conversation is the subject of our show today, Mary Barra. She's the CEO of General Motors, a remarkable woman, um, and doing remarkable things at GM. And I'm thrilled that we are talking, Mary Barra, today with the author of a new book about her, Charging Ahead. Uh, his name, the uh, author of the book, is David Welsh, and he's joining us. David, you're in, uh, you're in uh, Detroit, right? That's right, yeah. The heart of American innovation. Is it back to innovation in Detroit? Is Mary, is Mary Barra making Detroit once again the center of American innovation? She's trying to, and, and she's got a decent, uh, decent push to do it and a, and a good plan to do it. I think most people would still say it's Silicon Valley, uh, you know, that that's the heart of innovation because of all that's going on there. But uh, when it comes to transportation, uh, she's she's trying to take this once great company that fell on its face, long period of decline, death, rebirth, and and bring it back, not just as a, as a profitable company, which she's already done, but one that is a technology leader and really uh changes the face of transportation and and the means by which we do it for the first time in 100 years david i don't want to make this a show about elon musk but of course when we talk electronic vehicles when we talk evs when we talk about innovation when we talk about the american car industry we can't help thinking of musk the richest man in the world the most controversial man increasingly and of course the ceo of tesla would it be fair to say that mary barra is the anti-musk in every sense, if you wanted to imagine the reverse of him in terms of her career, her approach to business, her relationships, that she she does exactly what Musk doesn't do, for better or worse? Yeah, look, I, I, I think that's, that's a great observation of yours, and, and I, I bring up that point in the book. Uh, and look, it's totally fair to mention him. I knew when I wrote this book, particularly with that title, uh, that... Musk fans, the Tesla fanboys would would probably get all over me, and, and you know one did on Twitter without even reading the book. And I said, "Look, Elon Musk or Tesla are mentioned a hundred times in this book." Um, and and to be fair, you're right that you don't want to do a show about Elon, but we wouldn't be where we are in terms of electric electrification without him. He's the one who made electric vehicles appealing. Before that, they were all compact vehicles. Uh, they didn't go very far on a charge. They weren't very attractive. They were basically cars done to either experiment with electric drive or to meet regulations someplace or both. And he made them not only desirable, but 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 
intensely desirable. People love. Yeah, you don't need to convince me, David. I'm for better or worse part of a, a two Tesla household. Um, sure. Let's talk well, Mary Barra. Um, yeah, she's basically following him, but she's trying to overtake him, and she's got a plan and the industrial base to do it. Right. I, w- I want to get to that, but uh, your new book uh, you show, and I'm quoting from a, a a very positive review of the book. You show how the CEO got her shot. Tell me about the story of this woman, because ten or fifteen years ago. I, I don't think one could have guessed that she would have become this this national figure. Tell me about her. Where where was she born, and what has she spent her life doing? Sure. So she she grew up north of Detroit, a town called Waterford, which is not your basic working class suburb. It's near Pontiac, and her father worked at one of the General Motors plants in Pontiac, none of which exist anymore. Uh, Pontiac's sort of this dead town. It's it. it in fact, I, I, I was there recently, and, and there are a few bars and restaurants and a hospital, but it's uh, a shadow of what it was when General Motors had three or four different factories there and some 60,000 workers. Um, and her dad was a dye maker. He was a, a blue-collar union guy. And I think her mother was a secretary at the high school or something. You know, this is a working-class family she grew up in, but they did value education. And she studied at General Motors Institute, now called Kettering University, which you know, it's an engineering school. And I think uh, one of her professors is interviewed in the book. I, I think at the time, 80 or 90 percent of the students in the electrical engineering program she was in were men. So she goes to a mostly male engineering school to get in, you know, that, that specializes in, in engineering, really for automaking, gets into a mostly male auto industry at a company, GM, that was dominated by either finance guys or very macho engineering guys. And I specifically say that because they're mostly men uh, in the engineering works. And she grew up um, in the factories. In, is a so, manu- so, so D- David, do you think this gives her more of an insight into the sensibility of the manufacturing class, the managerial and working class, the male class? What, what has enabled her to go from this relatively humble background to being the head of GM and the woman who, as you're suggesting, is, if not single-handedly, certainly pioneering the reinvention of the American automotive industry. It certainly does. When, when you're working on the factory floor and you're dealing with the, the, the union workers, the blue-collar workers, first off, you get to know that union versus management tension that's there. Uh, but you also understand that that mix of men and machines and parts that creates and makes an automobile and the difficulty it takes to do that. And then she grow up in, grows up in engineering, so she, she gets to know kind of everybody along the way on the white collar side of the business. Not everybody, even those who, who engineer the vehicles themselves, get that kind of experience. She, she started at the most earthy point in in automaking and worked her way to the top. So she does have a more broad view of things, I think, than most other CEOs we know, because not, not many of them come out of engineering these days, at least in the US, let's say, uh, and certainly not manufacturing. D- David, um, Alan Murray is a conservative of the best kind, I think. And perhaps, uh, I don't want to speak on behalf of Murray or, or Alan Allen, he's a very interesting guy, but I don't think he's a sh- necessarily a huge fan of organized labor. 
what what is or what are Barra's politics, and particularly in the context of organized labor and the world of organized labor that she grew up in in Detroit? I think she she told me, um, you know, her teeth are straight because of the UAW. Um, so, mm -hmm. look, but she also drove a very hard bargain with the union and, and had the longest strike in 50 years. So what are her, her politics are tough to say because she she guys she guards that very fiercely. Um, I think she understands oh, yeah, in that sense again, the ultimate opposite of Musk, who spends all his time on Twitter telling everyone what he thinks about the world. Exactly. Uh, look, Mary Barra is an absolute pragmatist. Um, when Trump was in office, it made sense for her to sort of court the Trump administration and side with them on certain things like suing California to get rid of their right to, to govern emissions in the state. He leaves office and she sides with the Biden administration, which says California can govern their own emissions. Now, you know, she got a lot of cr criticism for that flip flop, but it shows you that that she's kind of a pragmatist um, or it is an absolute pragmatist. I think her politics kind of go with whatever is best for her company. I'm sure she has her own personal views, but she's not going to run the company that way. She does absolutely believe in climate change and that the auto industry has to be part of the solution and can continue to be one of the problems for it. Well, what kind of reputation does she have in Detroit, particularly amongst more militant workers? They don't love her, um, as you might guess. Look, Is she that your euphemism for that they hate her? Um, I think probably some do. Uh, she was very unpopular during the strike. She, because she had closed down the Lordstown, Ohio plant, big, you know, gigantic assembly plant in the northeast corner of the state, you know, had been there a long time. John DeLorean ran it years ago before he started his own car company. Um, she closed down a couple other transmission plants and, um, you know, I mean, did that in a period of economic prosperity and led to a strike. So I think they see her. Yeah, well, your, your father may have been a union guy, but, you know, you're not from here no more sort of thing. Um, any that, truth to that, David? I mean, is she a, a hardline reactionary when it comes to organized labor now? No, I don't think so. I, I think that, um, you know, she, what, what she did was essentially part of the restructuring of the company that we've seen overseas as well, closing down or selling off operations that just didn't carry their weight. Um, she's, I, I think she does, first of all, you know, she, after that strike, the union got a pretty generous contract and they get the most generous profit sharing checks of, of any of the big three car companies in Detroit. Uh, so I don't think she's necessarily anti-union, um, but I think she is going to do what's right for her company or what she thinks is right for her company and her shareholders and for the future investment in technology. And if that means cutting some more jobs here, then so be it. Alan, what is it about women taking unions on? Think of Margaret Thatcher, for example, who had, quote unquote, the balls to take on the coal miners in England and actually won. Presumably, Barra has won in these fights with car unions in, in Detroit, has she? I think in this case she did. I mean, although you look at what, you know, the union, in some ways, this was a a typical union contract in that the company got to cut in one place, but those who survived 
got some nice pay raises and nice bonuses. And that's often how these things go. Um, if you look at how the contract was structured to end that strike, she basically, you know, for those who are willing to stick around, she made it worth their while. Hmm. And you know, that that's, that's pretty, again, I, I I hate this word because it's kind of boring, but it's pretty pragmatic. Right. So enough politics or enough on the unions, David. How did she get from being just another manager, just another graduate of a technical school to becoming CEO of GM? So she's rising up. Uh, they had her in human resources. and Oh, dear. That's the ultimate no-end street, isn't it? It is. Uh, look, I, I you know... I've heard this in, in, in many companies uh, that, that that's not generally where they find talent for the C-suite in, in the human resources department. And she was put there by Fritz Henderson, who was the CEO during bankruptcy, because Fritz thought she understood the cultural problems of the company and she could help bring about some change that way. But when the CEOs, so after bankruptcy, GM was run first by Ed Whitaker, then Dan Ackerson. They what were years were these? This was 2010, 11, really. Not, two, that, two, not that long ago. And, and how bad a state was GM in in those days? Well, it was a mess. I mean, the, the restructuring and bankruptcy uh, cut a lot of bad brands and unwanted factories and so forth. Tell me uh, some of those brands. We Most of us probably only think of them in our nightmares. What were the worst GM cars? <laughs> Pontiac. Well, oh, my uh, God. Saturn. Uh, don't forget I wouldn't that wish one. a Saturn or a Pontiac on my worst enemy, would you, David? <laughs> uh, my first car was a Pontiac, and and I sold it shortly after because it gave me it had that awful transmission. Um, Saab, Saab was one of them, and Hummer was also killed yeah, off. Yeah, but Saab was post glory day. So I mean, this reflected the worst side of the American car industry: cars designed by committee, no innovation, sure. no brand. No, nothing except history, and it was a bad history. Yeah, so she she, uh, she comes in, well, I should say the telecom CEOs came in after this. Now, this is important because they had fired the last two, let's call them GM lifer CEOs that were there at the time of bankruptcy, and a lot of the people immediately beneath them. So that gives people like Mary Barra, who were in sort of upper mid-management at the time, an open look at the CEO, CFO, all those top jobs. Uh, so that that kind of, you know, gave her a bit of a fast track there. But one thing Ed Whitaker and Dan Ackerson both told me was that they thought she understood what was wrong with the company, what was wrong with its culture and how they did things, and that she could come in and bring about change. And that vaulted her into bigger positions from there because these outsiders who thought the company was terribly managed and had awful culture thought that she was one of those inside. Plus, anyone with any real ambition probably would have, by then, left town symbolically or otherwise, gone from Detroit to Silicon Valley or certainly gone to another company in, in Detroit. Um, so when did she actually become CEO of GM? It was January of 2014, and she was named a couple months before that. And had she caught the EV bug before that? I'm guessing that the Elon fanboys reading your book or watching this will say, well, she never really believed in it. Elon had already come up with Tesla many years before, and she's just another fellow traveler. When did she discover the value of EV? That actually goes back quite a long way. So she she was in this executive shadow program, and she shadowed a guy called Harry Pierce, who was vice chairman of the company. Harry oversaw the EV1. So you're talking late 90s before Tesla was born. 
And Harry told me that, Mary told him that she saw electric drive if they could solve all the problems that it had in the 90s. And they were using lead acid batteries back then, so it was old technology. If they could solve it, then the auto industry could get out from under this regulatory, uh, this constant fighting you know, with regulators and uh, legislation over clean air rules and emissions and that sort of thing. And the second time was when they were working on the Chevy Bolt. The GM engineers who'd been working on it said, oh, look, let's just get something out there that gets 125, 150 miles of range. And this would have been around 2011 or 12. And Mary said, no, uh, we, we got to go with over 200 uh, or we're going to embarrass ourselves. And if you look at the Bolt today, it, the Bolt DUV, the slightly larger compacts, but the slightly larger one gets about 265 miles, which is pretty competitive with a lot of vehicles that are out there, especially for a vehicle well, itself. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's easy, of course, to compare everyone with Musk when it comes to visionaries they're going to lose. But how does she compare with the other... CEOs of large car companies, Volkswagen, the German companies, or the other American companies, did she understand what was about to transform the industry before or after most of the other CEOs? I think she understood it before. Internally, she was talking about this in 2015. And Dan Ammon, now former president of the company, told me that the two of them saw uh, Tesla emerging. They saw Uber and Lyft, and they saw Waymo from Google. So they saw these emerging trends and technologies and thought, you know, very quickly they had to accelerate their electric vehicle programs and they had to accelerate autonomous vehicle programs. You like Look, that word, David, acceleration, don't you? Yeah. Hey, I, you know, I like driving cars fast. Um, so... You know, and look, she was on the on the uh, Chevy Bolt program in 2012. So they saw value in this. Now, where GM did, I, th there were some missteps. There were some things they could have done to have more they to have more electric vehicles for sale today a lot a lot faster. But they did see that they needed to come up with a way to fully electrify the entire fleet, and that's when they started coming up with a whole industrial plan. And that's what their ultium battery really is. It's a platform and, that and that's everything this, this whole idea of everybody in. Um, uh, she, I found a headline today suggesting that she had said publicly that GM's well positioned um, with her, their new EV launches. Has she essentially bet her job and the company on EVs? Is that the essence of her vision of, of GM? Yeah, without question. Her, her legacy is completely wrapped up in whether or not this Ultium plan and all of these electric vehicles work and whether or not GM is going to be a successful company for another hundred years after sort of barely surviving the first time. And they're doing solar energy as well. Some again, some of the, the, fan, the, the, the Elon fanboys will say, well, she's just following Elon. Whatever he does, she does. She's done anything which Tesla hasn't done. Hmm. I think... Um, the one thing I'd give her credit for that I don't think Tesla has been very successful at all is with uh, buying crews and commercializing it and turning into a self-driving car business. But time will tell whether or not autonomy is really going to deliver a great business. But Tesla's had a lot of problems with autopilot, which isn't really full self-driving anyways. And then they've got this full self-drive uh, thing that's supposed to come out by the end of the year. But as we know, Elon is very good at missing targets. So we'll see what happens with that. But I, I think in that sense, GM's made a big bet very quickly on it. Um, but in, you know, look, in terms of electrification, Tesla's the leader, and, and they were the trailblazer here in terms of really bringing it to the forefront uh, of, of 
Who, who, who is the rival uh, in terms of... I mean, obviously, everyone's trying to catch up with Tesla, but it's a different kind of company. It's her most direct rival, one of the, the Japanese companies. I saw there was a piece recently, I think it was in the Times, that Toyota has really stumbled on the EV front. They were very good, of course, with Prius and with the hybrid uh, model, but they've lost out on EVs. Is she competing with Honda and Toyota or Volkswagen or, or American companies? Ford, obviously. No, the, the, her, her most direct competitors here among the established, the old line car companies would be Volkswagen and Ford. Ford's got two EVs out there, the, the, the F-150 Lightning and the Mach-E that are doing very well, but they... They, they don't have many more coming for the next couple of years, and they've sort of got to go back and establish an entire electric vehicle platform in the way that GM has with Ultium, because they've sort of retrofitted the frames of existing vehicles to get EVs out there quickly. But now they've got to, they've got to go back and build battery plants and do the things that GM is already doing. In that sense, Volkswagen is the most direct competitor because they've got a dedicated electric vehicle platform, which is what Tesla does, by the way. So really, if you're looking at who's following Tesla, quickest and most closely would be Volkswagen and General Motors with a dedicated platform that just designs electric vehicles. Has the market responded well to um, Wall Street, uh, to, um, to, to what Barra is doing? It has. Uh, so when GM first made their big, uh, big announcement on what they were spending and the plants they were converting and the vehicles that were coming, uh, starting 2017 and getting really underway in earnest in 2019, she really got the stock price up there um, and uh, had almost doubled the price from the IPO. And it had been an absolutely static stock. for Making uh, herself, I assume, maybe not Elon Musk rich, but nonetheless a, a pretty wealthy woman. Yes, I think she's done quite well. Um, now, the stock's kind of tumbled back down along with everything right now. And... I think GM's shares have given all of that back. But for a while, she was absolutely a darling on Wall Street. Uh, there, there's a bit of a wait-and-see approach right now, uh, waiting for GM to get these vehicles out because the launches with this Ultium program have frankly been pretty slow. But I, I think what... When you say Wall slow, is that, again, a euphemism for um, unex, unexplicable holdups, which have classically undermined the American car industry over the last 50 years? I think um, th there is some explanation to it. One is GM has, you know, they're, they're, they're building a battery plant to make the cells for these, and the plant just opened. Um, I think that has probably been a tougher challenge than they thought to get that up and going. Uh, but, but, some... but, yeah. Tougher than they thought. These people should know exactly what they're doing. I mean, that's not an excuse, is it? No, it's not an excuse. It's an explanation. I think everybody is, for, for everyone, making EVs is a much tougher task than they thought. And, and it was for Tesla as well. Think about all the delays for the Model 3 and all the, you know, think of production, how Elon went through. Look at Toyota, their first EV, the BZX4, the wheel fell off. And, and Toyota is probably the best in the world at manufacturing vehicles. They're great at it. And the wheels. Yeah, I mean, the Toyota stuff. Um... I owned, or we firstly leased and then actually owned one of the original Toyota uh, RAV4s. So, and, and its range was limited. It could never do more than about 80 or 90 miles. It barely got me from my home then in Berkeley to Silicon Valley. But it was a very reliable car. And it's, it's really bemusing that Toyota, which always seemed to be such an innovative company, has 
failed so dramatically on the EV front. They have, and I, I think they'll get there because they're they, they are. You know, electrification with the Prius and Prius plug-in hybrids is not totally foreign to them, um, and they are great at manufacturing. I think they'll figure this out. But you know, my my, my point stands here that for everybody who's tried to go from a hundred plus years of making cars that have gas tanks and engines to batteries and motors. It's been a very difficult transition. And there isn't a lot of expertise out there, even hiring employees for a battery plant. There aren't a bunch of them hanging around on the unemployment line uh, just waiting to start work. David, we haven't talked China yet, and she has a headline suggesting that she believes there's tremendous opportunity in China. Maybe true, maybe not. But the Chinese are also pioneering battery technology and EVs. Is there a direct competition with GM in China? Or is China, as she's suggesting in that headline, does it actually offer an interesting commercial opportunity for GM? There is an opportunity, but the Chinese automakers are making a lot of headway with electric vehicles. And you know, with, with mass market brands and, and over there, GM's mass market brand is Buick, which still does very well in China. Those Chinese vehicles are going to be tough competition. I think Cadillac will continue to grow. The Chinese Chinese view American luxury or in some ways the way Americans view European luxury. They, they actually like it. Uh, so uh, th there is growth opportunity for GM there, but there's also a lot of risk, particularly with the geopolitics and, and you know, right, the politics. I mean, uh, is, is she facing the, the Apple problem, the Tim Cook problem of whether or not she has the, the moral appetite, if that's the right description, to actually manufacture anything in China or do business with the Chinese, given their terrible record of human rights, particularly in the manufacturing sector? Uh, look, I think she's, she's going to face that issue. Well, she's facing it already. And... Um, I, I think your moral appetite is uh, probably a good way to put it. I think she's going to have to face another that. euphemism, David, a polite one way of putting yes, it. Yes, very, very polite, maybe generously polite. Um, I mean, look, I think the other issue that all American companies are going to face over there is that as tensions rise between the U.S. and China, Chinese consumers are, are not looking at America as quite as cool as they did 20 years ago. And that's going to pose a brand challenge and will give Chinese brands that used to be seen as cheap and crappy over there to some consumers uh, as more appealing. It's, it's going to be there is an opportunity there. She's not wrong, but I think it's tougher to seize than it was 10 or 15 or certainly 20 years ago. Plus, China is a leader, of course, in solar. I mean, what are her ambitions for GM in solar? Tesla is heavily invested now in, in, in solar in batteries in other applications for recharging energy. Um, how important for Barra and GM is, is solar? They've just dabbled in that. They've got that recent deal with SunPower that will put solar panels on your home, and then you'll have a GM battery on the wall in your garage, similar to how Tesla has the power wall. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and they didn't take a stake in SunPower. They're just partnering up with them. Could they buy it at some point? It's very possible, but... Solar City, uh, as it was acquired, was sort of a financial lodestone for Tesla, and they don't even really report its its earnings anymore. I don't, I don't think it's a great business at the moment. So I think GM is happy to just partner with somebody until it's more evident that it's a moneymaker, and then maybe they could buy a stake or, or buy the company. But I, 
I think they'll partner on it. I don't I don't think it's a priority for GM though until it shows that it's it's got more. David, finally, property. what about the, the politics of all this? Uh, the, the, the recent Biden bill on recharging energy and investments and subsidies, it must be good news for GM. Does Mary Barber have a good relationship with the Biden administration? Has she spent much time with Joe Biden? Yeah, I think she has. And look, so first off, the IRA, the, the Inflation Reduction Act, is great news for GM because they were out of EV credits for selling the bolt and the bolt. And the, GM and Tesla were already... You know, they, they were all done. And all of their competitors then had a $7,000 discount on their vehicles that GM and Tesla had to compete with. Uh, now, everyone's on an evil, even playing field to get those discounts. So she's got to be very happy about that. Uh, GM does, I think, have a good relationship with the Biden administration. He, he keeps calling her the leader, which is infuriating all of the Tesla fanboys. Um, but what it, what it is doing is... If, Biden's policies are basically kind of crafted to help GM and Ford push ahead in the EV race. It's probably and, driven Elon in more into the arms of uh, Donald Trump, which... Uh, there's no question about that. I, which, I think that's... Uh, certainly uh, makes him an even more controversial figure. Well, fascinating stuff, David. Congratulations on Thank you. Uh, the new book, Charging Ahead. You have indeed charged ahead in this bio of Mary Barr, a very interesting piece on... Uh, this major figure in American industry, an iconic figure in an iconic brand. Congratulations. What else should people be reading these days, David, about cars or otherwise? What's on your nightstand? I hope you're not reading while you're driving. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I need to go out and find something to read because I just spent the past year working on this book. Uh, and I've sort of been, uh, to, to be honest with you, what's on my nightstand is a book about the Whiskey Rebellion because I just got tired about cars, <laughs> got tired about writing about cars for a bit, so I wanted to read about something different. 